0: Welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light. We tweet at Podcasting Light. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the podcast, we have Elizabeth Harper. She's a lighting designer and professor of lighting design at the University of Southern California. Welcome, Elizabeth.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. Thrilled you could join us. And how are things generally in Los Angeles at the moment?
1: You know, it's actually raining. It's like raining for a few days, which is super bizarre.
0: Somebody lost a bet on that. (laughs) So how would you describe the current place you are in the business, or perhaps a better question would be, how would you describe the place you were in in the business 10 months ago and then now?
1: I'm working at USC as a professor, which is actually fairly new to me. It's a couple years old. Outside of that, I am a working lighting designer still, even though I teach. Um, I work a lot in regional theater. Um, I do some corporate work. In the past, I've done some architectural work. I'm kind of all over the place. I always have my hands in a couple different parts of the industry, but I feel like it always comes back to theater for me.
0: Percentage-wise, other than your professorship, what percentage of your work would you say is theatrical versus the other genres you work in?
1: I'd say it's like 80% theatrical at this point.
0: Okay. And how much of your work is local versus distant?
1: That's changed recently. Um, It used to be a lot of local work, And now it's increasingly distant. Basically, before the shutdown, most of my shows were going to be out of town. It was about 50-50 prior to that.
0: We haven't really had a whole lot of West Coast representation on the show. And what we have had has been primarily been people who work in television, film, that kind of thing. And, you know, I realized that we haven't really talked about Los Angeles theater on the show. And there is a real indigenous theater community there. And I feel like a lot of the theater that gets pressed in Los Angeles is actually by imported artists.
1: Yeah, I mean, they there's a ton of theater that is local to Los Angeles that I think is really interesting. And you're right; it doesn't get as much press as maybe what Center Theater Group is doing. Although they've also Center Theater Group has also had me. They've had set designers from here. Um, I think there's actually a narrative that theater people in Los Angeles don't work in Los Angeles, and in my experience, that hasn't been true. I've worked at just about every theater here. And in varying combinations with other local designers, with designers from out of town, and increasingly, I'm the out-of-town designer, a lot of regional theater has the same sort of thing going on.
0: How do you mean has the same thing going on?
1: I mean, if I go to Denver Theater Center or Oregon Shakespeare Festival, very rarely are any of the designers from Ashland or Denver which I personally, I really have mixed feelings about that. I mean, is I love traveling. I love working with different groups of people every time because otherwise, why would I do theater? But I also have this like nagging feeling that theater should reflect the community and it should be an art form since it's live that is responsive to what's going on and the artists that are there. I don't think there's anything inherently better about. Artists that live in particular places. So as much as I love doing shows out of town, it's something I actually think about a lot.
0: That's well said, and one wonders how places like those can ever hope to develop a pipeline if they don't employ their own artists.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't see any reason why there couldn't be a really deep pool of designers and actors in every city. And some cities are better at that than other people. If you look at Seattle, there's a bunch of great Seattle designers. And every time I've done this show in Seattle, I've worked with at least a couple people from Seattle, which I think is really cool.
0: My wife's older brother lives in Seattle and his uh, his daughter has a friend at school who is the child of a lighting designer from New York who I ended up looking up one day and I was like, oh my God, he's worked on Broadway. Wait, oh my God, he hasn't just worked on Broadway. He worked on an, on a, on an August Wilson show. And that was his only Broadway credit.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems to me there's a couple different sort of groups on Broadway. There's people who do only Broadway shows and they have these huge careers, and there's like eight of them. And then there's people who work with certain directors um, who maybe do a show a year or you know a couple shows spaced out over several years, but generally also keep working in regional theater and they teach and they you know have their hands in other parts of the industry. And then you know there's like there's always that one regional show that's like, it takes everybody with it and it maybe has a couple different development phases, but there's something so essential about that team that it winds up going all the way. Um, I don't know, for, for me, I I thought Broadway was like a really big thing when I was in undergrad. I was like, you gotta be on Broadway. Like, I, you know, I would rather be an assistant on Broadway than a designer, and I don't, I don't think that anymore. I think that if it happens for me, that's great. Um, but it's not something I particularly aspire to unless it was one of those shows that was just development after development after development. And there became something that was, something about the lighting that was inextricable from the show that, you know, no one else could do because, you know, not because they aren't good, but because they weren't there. Um, that's the kind of thing that, interest me. And I like to do a lot of new plays. So that process is, yeah, it's sort of preferable to me and kind of where I want to be.
0: How did you find theater or how did theater find you?
1: I feel like I have sort of a different story. Um, My family didn't have any money growing up and I didn't go to a high school that had a huge theater program or a well-funded theater program. Um, So I I didn't actually grow up going to the theater. I saw a couple of shows because I like, I remember once, like, I was dating this guy whose parents had tickets to the rep, the repertory theater in town, and they took me once, and I was like, this is wealth.
0: And where was that?
1: That was in St. Louis. I grew up in St. Louis, so it's was a rep in St. Louis. And um, they left an intermission, and I was so upset and couldn't say anything. So I didn't really have any exposure to that level, except very sporadically, Um, but I did find myself wanting to make things and wanting to create. I was always really bookish and I liked to read. And so I enjoyed reading the scripts and saying, like, I can imagine this and then how do I, learning how, like, I can make this. So I was kind of that kid who was the only one kind of doing everything, like learning how to use a saw and finding, like, some paint that You know, it was definitely rotten and had that particular smell to it. Um, And painting that and, like, going to Goodwill or going to the costume closet and, like, trying to figure out, like, okay, how how can I make this work? And eventually finding some old lights. And my best friend's dad was an electrician. And I remember, like, taking these lights down and being like, these don't work. But I think I could use them. I think they have most of the parts. And so he helped me fix them. And I was able to put them up and do kind of a rudimentary lighting design. And I just liked creating the world. And I didn't even really know how to be collaborative yet. I was sort of a one-man band. And the school started paying me to sort of take care of the theater. They paid me $12 an hour. And I was like, this is real money. This is like adult money to me. And I looked around at the jobs. You know, I would go to the career fair. And I was just like... I don't even know what this is. Like, I can't even really imagine sitting in an office. I don't really know people who sit in offices. So I think I'm just going to stick with this thing that I do. And I kind of think it might be a job somehow. I started like working at Six Flags and stuff like that. And I just had this idea that maybe I could figure out what this job was and how to do it.
0: It sounds like you figured out that you were an artist first. How did lighting end up being the thing that you cottoned onto?
1: You know, I have to be honest that it didn't really come to me until I was an undergrad. And at first I sort of thought I wanted to be a stage manager because I was like, oh, I can take all these things and I can put them together and I can keep track of everything. And then I took a lighting class, and I was like, oh, this is so cool, this subtlety of this, and the mood. And it's something that people don't notice, and they just feel. And I felt this real connection between the text and these sort of psychological, ephemeral ideas. As I learned the process of it, I found that there was something sort of soothing about how methodical, or at least I'm a very methodical designer, and that process of collaboration and then kind of being alone and making the plot and coming back in the theater and sort of sitting in the dark in the back really appealed to me.
0: Where did you do undergrad?
1: I went to a conservatory in St. Louis called Webster
0: and that was specifically a theater conservatory?
1: Yeah. I think like my freshman year, I figured out that I was a lighting designer. And then I had three really intense years because they not only produce their whole season, but they also are connected to the Repertory Theater of St. Louis and Opera Theater of St. Louis. So there's kind of a lot of professional work going on there.
0: When did you start with Six Flags?
1: When I was still in high school. I needed a job and school was out. So I didn't have that job anymore. And I was sort of like, you know, how can I keep doing this? Because, you know, previous summers I had worked at our community pool and what I liked about that job is it was right next to the outdoor community theater. And so I could leave work and go paint sets and stuff like that. And so I was always doing that. And then I saw this job in the paper and I was like, this is the next step. So I applied from the want ad. And that's I feel like that really dates me. Like I saw an ad in the paper and I applied for a job. I actually wound up as a, a rotating stage manager there. So I would rotate through all of the shows, you know, the character show, the saloon show, the Robin Hood show, the, all that.
0: So that showed you that you, there was a professional something out there that you could... Meet. There was
1: something there. I still hadn't quite figured it out, but there was definitely something there.
0: I gotta say, I really feel your story. Uh, I, I grew up poor and a lot of people who work don't really know what that means
1: yeah i I mean my mom was sort of just baffled by it she was like you want to do what like is that a thing and i was like yeah i think it's a thing and i want to go to school for it and she was like okay well you better get a job
0: (laughs) what happened in between completing your bachelor's and starting nyu
1: i worked for a year at an architectural lighting design firm randy burkett lighting design it's in st louis It was great. And what I did was I worked my architecture job during the day. And then at night, there were a couple of like small professional theater companies that were kind of ragtag in St. Louis. And so I would go at night and do those. And so (laughs) I like never slept that year. But I knew I wanted to go to grad school because I wanted to get the fuck out of St. Louis. And I was like, I have to build up my portfolio. So renovating malls and doing Bass Pro Shops during the day, and I'm doing Man of La Mancha (laughs) at night.
0: So you were desperate to leave St. Louis. What led you to choose uh, NYU?
1: It was NYU or Yale. That's where I set my sights, because by then I had some regional theater experience. I did a lot of assisting at the St. Louis Rep. I did some assisting at Opera Theater St. Louis. So I started to get to know people. I started to get to know people like Chris Ackerlin and Michael Phillippe and Betsy Adams and people who were really doing it and were living in Chicago or New York or places like that. So I started looking at where they were teaching or they had taught or they had been to school. And that's how I settled on those two schools. A couple of things happened that led me to NYU. One was I just, I just wanted to live in New York, but I also had a partner at the time who wanted to move with me. And I was like, what are you going to do in New Haven? Like, how are you going to get a job? And how am I going to get a job? Because you can't work that much in grad school because it's so much work. But on every break, I was freelancing. I did some freelancing for like Lenny Schwindinger. i Worked every summer at Focus Lighting, doing architectural stuff, and... I was like, I don't know how to handle that in a smaller city. And I also looked at the, not only the lighting designers I liked, but I looked at sort of recent graduates and I just thought that NYU had so many people doing so many things. There were people in architectural lighting who had graduated. There were people in events and corporate theater and regional theater. And I saw a lot of regional theater graduates from Yale and I knew I couldn't afford to do that. I was like, I'm going to have to figure out something else and I'm scared that this program won't understand or I won't fit in or what if I don't have the tools or the support post-graduation. So I wound up going to NYU and it worked out pretty well for me.
0: What path brought you to the work you do now? Because I feel like you kind of found the career that a lot of conservatory programs teach for, but not a whole lot of people actually have that career.
1: I did have this experience sort of always looking for a money job, and I think it was actually really useful because I didn't book myself with a ton of small shows at the beginning of my career. I was really doing a lot of drafting, assisting, corporate theater, theme park stuff. And what that meant is, I didn't have a lot of time for theater. So the shows that I picked had to be really good. They were all super small at the beginning, but I, it had to be some director where I was like, oh, you work at bigger theaters too. Or this play is a new play and something I could see going somewhere. So I was able to just do a couple of shows. And then I didn't have a bunch of shows that I took that were just like, nah, eh, I'm just, you know, doing a show in a black box theater. So I think what happened is sort of like I wound up having a pretty good reputation and it looked like I was super selective because, I mean, I was super selective, but um, I didn't get sort of bogged down in the really small theaters. I I was able to sort of move up into larger and larger theaters.
0: Can we sort of pick apart the work you did on one of your shows?
1: Yeah, sure.
0: I'd like to talk about Office Hour. It looks in a lot of ways like the kind of show a lighting designer can really sink their teeth into.
1: It was incredible. It's one of my favorites.
0: Where did that take place?
1: That was at South Coast Rap.
0: What was the structure of the show?
1: So um, I'm going to spoil it. So if you don't want to hear spoilers about office hour, (laughs) skip ahead. Um, So this show's big construct is it's about an adjunct professor who thinks one of her students might be headed towards a school shooting. So it's about how do you deal with that student? How do you try to reach out? Can you reach out? Like, what are all the options there? And what does going down those roads mean? Like, what's the outcome? The outcome is literally life or death. So the show opens with the professor, who was played by Sandra O, oh, who was incredible. The professor invites this kid in, and in the first five minutes of the show, he shoots her, and it blacks out. And then it comes back up, and the, she does it again, but she says something different, and he comes in, and they have...
0: Oh, it's a bell play.
1: Yeah, they have this like long talk, and then there's a thing that happens where all of a sudden there's a part of the show where we see sort of... 12 outcomes right in a row that are, like, completely different. And so it's a very sort of ambiguous show. It's, I mean, the first time he shot what's clearly the main character in the first five minutes, I mean, people screamed.
0: That's really intriguing. Scenically, what is the show?
1: So Takata did the set, and shout out to him, because he teaches with me at USC. And so he's, like, one of the few people I, like, one of my few colleagues I still get to see, like, every day. Um, but he, so it starts with the teachers gathered in this teacher's lounge. So it was a very small platform that was just like some tables and chairs and a couple of teachers sitting around it. And then that sort of tracked off. And then there was this big reveal from a blackout of this black portal opening and this perfect cube of an adjunct's office, like crappy fluorescent lighting and all with a ceiling just floating downstage. And then it sort of parked there.
0: And that is Sandra O's office? Yes. Got it.
1: Or her shared office, you know, it's not a great office.
0: (laughs) What were your goals going into this? What did you know even before you saw designers rehearsal? What did you know that you needed to do?
1: One of the first things that came to mind, and this seems so, um, so simple, but it's actually really hard, is it's called office hours. So... Outside of the other options that are shown, the actual bulk of the play takes exactly one hour and is one hour. So I knew I wanted to do a really subtle time of day shift. Um, and there was this clock and the clock had to show one hour passing. But also when we flash to the, all of the other options the clock would change to like different times of day. So we had to build this kind of incredible like DMX clock. And it's like a super subtle detail, but I thought it was really important. But getting that shift in the time of day and really making this clean cube where there's no lighting visible, that it really felt extremely real because I think that threat is extremely real. There was one other option that we built in, because at first in the script, it wasn't really outlined what happens in all these other scenarios when we sort of flash towards 12 different options about what could have happened. So we started sort of coming up with them, with the whole team, and uh, one was she holds the door shut, and we see just flashes and bangs of a gun outside, Um, and One of them was this idea that we had, and it actually made me sick. What we did was, there was the ceiling, right, with the usual drop-in fluorescent lights, and they weren't real fluorescent lights. They were built for the show, and I included two UV lights that were also installed next to the regular fluorescents, but you couldn't see them, and we had done, like, blood spatter all over the set, but in UV paint, so you couldn't see it, so once the lights went black and we came up to that it was like the last possible outcome so it looked like a crime scene like you could see all the blood spatter that wasn't there and like there was like a rock in my stomach every time I saw it like the reality of that and see it you know I think so many people have experience watching crime shows and just knowing what that is immediately but the fact that you never saw it there I think about that like you a lot
0: Obviously, one key statement you're making is that this lighting is realistic and based in reality because this situation is real, and you need to understand that this situation is real.
1: I didn't want any sort of. I didn't want anyone to notice the lighting. Really, I wanted people to just think that this was a little floating cubicle of a classroom, and it's like a real room. The floor is light everything.
0: What other statements were you able to make? Were you trying to make?
1: I think that. In this play, it really all came out of where the script went. The thing about it was during the sort of bulk of the show, there was actually a lot of levity and warmth. So I didn't want it to get so dire, so fast. So the office is dingy for sure. And it has the fluorescence, obviously, but it's not an uncomfortable space. It has this like big window that, like, I did this super slow shift over time to kind of get warmer and warmer. And then that made it sort of all the more shocking at the end when we, we sort of think, like, oh, she's solved this, like, she's really gotten through to this kid. And, like, the answer is maybe not. yeah. So it's a, it's a real tone balance for this play with how grim it is and how shocking it can be. But also the idea of being able to get through to a student, you know, that's something I think a lot about now. So, um, that's all that play has really stuck with me.
0: So you mentioned the window. I don't want to ask you about that, but I also want to ask you about how did you deliver the reality or realism of all these light sources, especially in a situation where you had a, a roof and two upstage 45 degree walls?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I learned a lot about ceilings. Um, and some of my favorite plays I've done have had full ceilings and what's really critical for the lighting designer i think is you have to like get in there with the set designer right away and really be clear about what you need and exactly how much space you need to do it in because it should obviously be the smallest amount of space and the most architecturally sort of obvious like you don't want like you know something that is like a weird box somewhere it needs to make sense so what talk and i figured out is i took some d40s And we short yoked them and Tock built me a trough at the edge of the stage. And I just lined the little trough with all of these just LED wash fixtures. And then we dressed the window to make sure that you couldn't ever see the reflection of the lights in the glass. And then I augmented that with some box booms, you know, things that get under the ceiling. The other thing I like never want to see and play with the ceiling is the shadow of the ceiling. But it's a really fine line between getting under that ceiling and then you get the weird shadows on the wall. Like, I don't want to see that either, and not seeing that line of the ceiling. So, for me, it was a balance. Anytime I have had a ceiling, I've had some sort of architectural feature where I can hide lights at an angle that's like closer to 45, maybe 40 degrees. Um, so I'm not relying on something that's super flat and I, but I can like fill in under the eyes a little bit, or, you know, it gets tricky when they go to the edge of the stage. So you've kind of got to get them there.
0: And tell me about the window. Yeah. The photos I saw, it looked amazing.
1: The window is actually surprisingly low tech. It's really just a drop that is hung that tracks with the unit and it has a couple of things. It has built-in lights at the drop. So when the unit tracked, the window stayed lit. And then it had a ladder that I hung like, I don't know. Even though it only takes like an hour, I probably had maybe four or five times of day because we also have the, all of the options to go through. So I had a couple of different ways to change that look because I always think it's super important. Windows, it makes me nuts when like, The time of day shifts, but like the only thing that shifts in the window is the color of the light. Like I don't think one LED through a window is a great way to do that. I think that you have to change the angle of the light so you can see the shape of the window change. And I think that windows just take a lot of light to me like usually... One light isn't really enough because I, I just want to see the light pouring through like in real life, you know?
0: Yeah, sit in a room during the early afternoon and watch the light pour. You know, watch how bright it is outside.
1: Yeah, and so I am I feel like something I keep coming back to is like, how do I keep changing the angle, not just the color? Because I feel like the color has become very easy to change.
0: It looked like it created a what appeared to be a single source beam that cast real shadows. Or did you fake that and you got me?
1: It was all real. There were no gobos in that show. So that was the real light. That's another thing that I just think about a lot. We think of light coming through a window, like hitting the floor. And I think that it's always really interesting to me when you kind of mess the angle up a little and you just kind of crash it into the set. That's how I like to see my light through a window. I like to see the real window. I like a lot of light and I like it crashing all over the set.
0: If it was a drop, how'd you get that shadow out of it? Or how did you get that source out of it?
1: Well, the window is on the diagonal and the drop is upstage, downstage. So with the masking that we had, this is again, something that I worked out with Tak way in advance. I had a really clear shot straight through the window. Well done. Thank you.
0: What did you take away from the show? And do you have anything else you want to say about it?
1: It just all comes back to being in development and being in the room and finding moments where there's something to say about the themes or the characters or, you know, what's important. Um, Whether it's, you know, the detail of the clock or the slow shift of the time of day or, you know, something really big like the, the blood spatter moment. I think it's really important just to support that. And if that blood moment is like kind of shocking as it was, if if it did feel precious, I think that, you know, being ready to just cut it and knowing that the show will be just as good and better for it. That's also exciting to me. just like the opportunity to be there and craft it though.
0: Can you compare your work on Office Hour to Quack?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And the reason I ask you about Quack is it's the same director, it's also a unit set with a ceiling, but it's a very different show with different themes.
1: Here's the secret of Quack is it looks like a unit set and it's not. Oh. Yeah, I can actually send you some pictures of it that shows what we did. I, um, What it is, is that Dane Laffery designed the set and another like great person. I worked with him a lot and he is so, I like talk, architecturally smart. So the story of Quack is that this sort of wellness guru doctor, he gets canceled and he winds up in sort of this men's rights movement and kind of destroys his own career. And it's a comedy.
0: <laughs> so it's but not Dr. Oz or Dr. Phil, but...
1: I kind of like Dr. Oz. He's kind of Dr. Oz. If it Dr. rhymes
0: Oz. with their names.
1: Yeah, Dr. Bear. <laughs> yeah, so... The story is actually that he hosts a TV show and he gets canceled and his assistant takes over, basically. And she becomes the new face of this TV show while he kind of his life just gets torn apart. So the story of the set is really it being his space and then it being his torn apart space, his like mentally deteriorated space. And then it becomes her space. And then there's a big trick at the end where it turns into, like, this sad table at the back of a bodega where, like, two people only can sit and eat a sandwich. Mm -hmm. So it turns into, like, a tiny box set at the end. So Dane constructed it, the three offices on a turntable, that they're exactly the same architecturally. And then while one is in the back, they're redressing it. So there's, like, multiple versions of this. Got it. So that was another show where I feel like, and this is where I think like my architectural work has really helped me is I can take a look at a space and not just think about how to light the actors, how, you know, what the show needs in terms of that. And for this, it's a, it's a big comedy and it was pretty broad. So it's a bright show. You don't want to like waste a lot of time with shadows and you know, you want the audience's buy-in. So Putting on top of that, how to make this architecturally realistic. So taking a look at the surfaces of the set and saying, you know, what walls need to be washed in light and would have, you know, would there be like track lighting or would there be what we call a wall washer in architectural lighting where it kicks light towards the wall? Where are the downlights and like what kind of grid would they realistically be put out in? Where are the practicals? And the thing I think about practicals a lot is how can I be sneaky with them? Because when actors in a box set go upstage towards the wall, again, with that box boom that gets under the ceiling, you don't want their big shadow on the wall, yeah. but you might need it to like light their face a little bit more. So I like washing out the wall with a practical, so or at least being able to make it seem like it's coming from the practical. So it's kind of a little cheat that I think, especially if there's an expanse of wall, upstage like i'm just like oh we need to architecturally address that so we don't get into a weird place where we start noticing the lighting
0: so these are some cases where your experience with architectural lighting design has really helped you
1: Yeah, and that show also had my little lighting trough um, of, um, again, short-yoked, but this time Parnells. Um, And to avoid the little scallops, I'm so grateful for the master electrician at the Kirk Douglas, Sean Myers, who's awesome, because he did this for me, and it was, like, the most annoying note ever. So you know how, like, if you put Parnells, like, right up against a little trough, you're probably going to get some, like, little scallops just because they're so soft? And I didn't want to see those. So we made a tiny trough on the downstage edge of the sort of bigger lighting trough. So we made like a tiny little lip and I put LED tape in there, warm white. And so I washed up that lip. So it just looked like an extension of the ceiling. It's kind of like, you know, the TV trick where it looks like there's crown molding, but it's really just white wall that like goes up and you kind of view it as flat. It's kind of like that. Um, I mean, it was kind of an insane show. As he deteriorates, the, the lighting sort of deteriorates, so by the time he's packed up, it's just one of those yellow work lights on a stand. I love finding stuff at Home Depot and putting it on stage. That always makes me happy.
0: That's awesome. Do you have any other thoughts about that show that you would like to share?
1: Kind of like Office Hour, that show is, it's such a narrative sort of tricky balance because I'm thinking in such detail like about this little light trough that I don't want little scallops on and how can I make that less noticeable and so you sort of wind up with more and more detail and your lighting gets less and less noticeable Mm. and like sometimes you're like man, that was really hard. And like, no one's gonna notice. But it's like the best thing that no one's gonna notice.
0: But they would really notice if you hadn't done all those other things. And they wouldn't notice in a good way.
1: Yeah, no, you don't want that. But sometimes it's like, man, I should get some credit for this. And it's like, yeah, no, they're just gonna like the show, which is credit enough.
0: <laughs> Tell me a little more about the LA theater scene. And sort of how, where you
1: are in it. Um, I'm all over the place. I'm everywhere in the LA theater scene. I feel feel like Um, a couple of my favorite LA theaters that I feel like are just really kind of what LA is about and it doesn't get maybe as much press as it should. Boston court is a 99 seat theater, but it's a beautiful 99 seat theater and they focus on new works and they are so supportive of designers there Some of my favorite work has come out of that space because of the super supportive, just sort of try anything environment and the types of shows that they pick tend to be really like real opportunities for designers to do something maybe they've never done before or to really push the boundaries of what can be done, Um, not necessarily in technological ways, but in ways that are sort of clever and more about storytelling. So I love them. They're great. Um, I also love Latino Theater Company. They are an LA institution. They do new plays, revivals. I think that not only their point of view, but like the way that that company, and it really is a really tight knit company, you know, almost in the tradition of like a repertory theater, that they are able to communicate and make something that's so cohesive. I just think that they're great. The other company that I really like in LA is the industry opera company. Um, And that's headed up by Yuval Sharon. And he works like all over the world doing opera, but the industry really focuses on new opera and The reason they're called the industry is, you know, everyone in L.A. says like, oh, it's an industry town or like, oh, are you part of the industry? (laughs) And they don't mean opera. But the cool thing about L.A. is we have all of these people here, right? We have TV people, film people. We have fine art people because you can actually still get like a reasonable rate on a studio uh, in some parts. Um, So that company was started to get all of these people together and to make art that really is of a specific place and that place is LA they did hopscotch which was an opera where I was talking to you all about it like before it even happened and he was like you know we're all in our cars like that's what people know about LA we're in our cars and I want to do an opera that's in our cars and so you would get in a car and you like the opera would happen around you there was like a guy on a motorcycle singing or they'd drop you off and like this park and and you'd see another piece of the story and there were like five different routes going. And so Mm -hmm. you only saw saw part of the story and then you would come back to this hub and be able to see the other parts. And it was this incredible immersive experience that could only happen in Los Angeles. They also did a piece that was at union station, the train station and bus station downtown. Mm -hmm. And it was invisible cities And you would put on headphones and you were just there with like every other person who was catching a bus or a train and the singers had like mics on and they were singing very quietly and just kind of passing through the train station. And that was another like incredible experience of being part of a narrative, but also part of a community. And so I I love the work that they're doing too. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. So all of this is happening in LA. Like these are LA companies and people who live here are working on them. And, you know, I think that people who think that LA has no culture or LA, you know, specifically has no theater. It's like, you should come out here and see, because I think that you're wrong. I mean, I think if you like hole up in the Beverly Hilton, you'll probably think that, but like, come out.
0: And what's the pipeline like? Where do you find assistants and programmers and craftspeople and things like that? Where do they come from?
1: I'm kind of cheating right now because I have made my own pipeline and I love hiring my students. So that's, you know, (laughs) that's one of the perks of the job. Um, But before that, I mean, before I taught at um, USC, I taught sort of intermittently at CalArts with Lap Chichu and Ann Militello. And, you know, I would steal students from there. And really what I'm looking for when I look for an assistant is like, I believe that anyone can do paperwork. I mean, I can show it, you know, I can show an assistant my paperwork and be like, do it like this. And it's probably going to be okay. What I'm looking for is emotional maturity and being able to kind of read a room and stay low key. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. It's really like can I sit next to you for 16 hours and are you going to be like a force for good in this room? One of the kind of great things slash sad things is I'm always finding new assistants because all of my former assistants go on and like do their own thing. And it's really cool. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, sometimes I wind up finding them again. Like one of my former assistants became a really great programmer. And so I still see her in a totally different capacity that's sort of the great the great thing, but then that means, oh, I gotta find somebody else. <laughs> but that was a really good system for me, is you know, I got to assist and I got to see a bunch of theater and I got to the kind of take it apart and see how it worked. Yeah, and that was really sort of foundational for me. Okay. So I like it when other people have that experience.
0: In twenty nineteen you did Mysterious Circumstances. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: That was it was so fun. So also a new play by Michael Mitnick. He did Scotland, PA in New York. And uh, we did the Seagull together at South Coast Rep, which is not the Chekhov play. It's the Michael Mitnick play. Um, <laughs> it just sounds alike. Um, but so he wrote this play based on a New Yorker article about this guy who was obsessed with Sherlock Holmes and these sort of like societies dedicated to collecting Sherlock ephemera. And, um, they're super intense. They're like professors meet cosplayers. And, um, but this guy uh, turns up dead and there's this question of this trove of documents that he may or may not have. And there's all of these people who sort of wanted the documents or maybe, you know, maybe they were his rivals. Maybe they weren't. It's all sort of, it's mysterious circumstances is Got it. like he, he died under mystery and like it hasn't been solved. So, I remember reading this article in The New Yorker when it came out, and Matt Shackman did too. He's now the artistic director of The Geffen, but he's also um, a really great director that I've worked with for a really long time now. And he was like, I want to turn this into a play. And the thing about Matt is uh, he is a relentless director, and I love it so much. Like, whatever you can see as a designer, he can see too. He has a great eye. And as much as you want it right, like as hard as you push yourself, he's there too. He's not one of those directors who's like, yeah, I think that looks good. It's like, we're going to get it all. So it's so tight and so incredible. So this story really appealed to him. He has a real interest in sort of noir and crime fiction. And we've always kind of shared that. So this play was its world premiere was at the Geffen. And it was still very much in development when we started. And the cool thing about it is it combined magic and storytelling. And there was a truth about it. Like these were real people for the most part. So it it was set like all over, you know, there's like, there's a pub. And it flashes back and forth between the actual murder of uh, this collector and Sherlock Holmes. So Sherlock Holmes is actually trying to solve the murder of this person who he doesn't really know exists. But then there's another layer because Sir Arthur Arthur Conan Doyle is thinking about killing off Sherlock Holmes because he's tired of writing him and his wife is dying. So this guy's dead. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is trying to kill off Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is trying to solve the murder of a person he doesn't know exists.
0: So there's sort of three layers of reality. Yes. Yes. Tell me about the process of this sort of from, you know, how'd you get the job and then through what you had to do to get the thing into tech and then beyond.
1: So, I get the job because Matt and I have worked together for a really long time, and I think we have a similar work ethic and a similar sort of point of view, and we're um, I think we're interested in a lot of the same things. Over the years, we've really gotten to a point where we have a language, I feel like, and uh, we communicate really effectively. So, The process was, um, it was incredibly difficult because we had to sit down. So Brett Benakis, also an NYU grad, designed the set. And the first thing we had to do is figure out how we fit all of these different places because it changes in like an instant. I mean, I think we had maybe 30 or 35 locations or something like that.
0: Which is a lot for up straight play.
1: Yes. So Brett goes through a lot of iterations and he comes up with some, some like automated sliders, um, some flying pieces, some things that like stacks of books that come up from the deck, um, a bridge that is like automated and comes on stage. And so it's just layers and layers of scenery. And so we really sit down with this each ground plan and we're trying to figure it out. And so like how long these moves will take, what we can do while the set is moving just to, to keep pace because it's so important in a mystery to keep that pace up so that, you know, you really don't have time to do too much figuring on your own and you can keep being surprised. Oh, and while we're doing this, there's like several illusions that have to happen. So like the show begins with a box floating in the air and it gets sucked into a void And that's like the box of this ephemera. So that's sort of like the MacGuffin, right? It's like, what's in the box? And so while we're doing that, we're trying to figure out these illusions and how they fit into like the architecture of the set and how I can light them so I don't give away the gag. Unfortunately, I've had some experience lighting magic. I've worked with Teller from Penn & Teller. On what? On a show called Play Dead. I mean, it's basically like a dark ride for the theater. It was super fun. And then I did Helder's show uh, called Invisible Tango, and he's more of a card artist, Um, but there's still some sneaky stuff in there. So, I mean, I I had a lot of stuff going on. I basically designed the 35 scenes separately and then looked at what they all had in common to build systems off of. And then I looked at those systems and I took into consideration we had... um, black projection screen in parts of the set. So how can I make sure that these systems don't touch the projection screen in any way? And then how do I make the illusions work? So all of those pieces kind of fit together one by one. So first I did every scene, then I did the, like, how can I make a system? Then I sort of chiseled away at Where the projection screens were, and filled in for like, okay, when they're open, I can use this light, but when they're closed, I have to use these other lights. And then the illusions were sort of the last thing I did because they were in production for a while and we had to go through several rounds of mock ups. I think the most impressive one was this beginning box that was floating in the air because the Geffen has a fairly deep apron. So the box was actually floating over the apron. And so we wanted the audience to go up to it and really look at it from just a couple feet away. So we were able to do it. It's again, that collaboration between lighting and scenic that makes it happen. But um, I was really excited because every night people would go right up to it and try to figure it out. And I always listen into what the audience says. But yeah, no one can see the contraption. So that was really successful. And when you start a show like that, you kind of put everyone on notice. You're like, you don't know what to expect. Anything might happen.
0: That sounds like an incredible way to start work on a show like this is to just think of each thing as separate and then sort of see what you can connect.
1: I find I do that for a lot of multi-set shows. I think of each set as like there's a separate play happening on the set and then What's the common thread and how do I sort of make that seamless, you know, sort of stitch them together?
0: What can you tell me about the environment or atmosphere that was common between all these things and how you created that? I get that it's a noir thing.
1: Yeah, so the angles are way more extreme obviously, then, especially the shows we've talked about so far. So there's a lot of shadow. In terms of atmosphere, the only atmosphere we used was actually pumped through the stage. We had um, fog machines on both sides that were in a trough and would come up. Oh, actually, no, we had a dry ice machine, too, because it made like a waterfall coming over a bookshelf at the very end. That was really pretty. But yeah, the thing about atmosphere in noir is like all of those Sort of classic horror movies have this like haze about them, like everyone's always smoking all the time. But if you're trying to do magic, haze can be your enemy. It just tips your hand like all the time.
0: Because it itself can radiate light once you point a light through it.
1: Yeah, it totally gives it away. It's like, oh, she changed the light there. It didn't look like a lighting cue to you, but here it is. Um, So there has to be other ways to sort of create the idea of that without actually doing it. So some things that we did were projections that sort of projected a mist. And again, the other thing that Hayes really does is it gives away the projectors. So like you can see the projector beam, which is, you know, I just think there's like a time and a place for everything. But like in this, we're really trying to make the audience wonder and not give away what we're doing. We went to such lengths to make this happen in like, the darkest of dark voids and like each piece would sort of come out and everything was very etched in, in both light and projection.
0: What informational sources did you use to draw inspiration from or research from for this project?
1: I always go back to The sort of, you know, noir classics, but also the reality of these spaces is really interesting to me because there has to be some sort of reality if we're going to be in this void, right? So, like, one scene is like a cheesy office Christmas party. And so I was like, okay, what's the most essential part of a cheesy office Christmas party? And how can we hide that somewhere? Because really, what I started thinking about is almost kind of an Alice in Wonderland like way of looking at things like what do you see that you think you know and then what else could it be so I mean it's sort of like the fluorescence and office hour it's like you think you know what this is you think you know what it does and it actually does something else so that was a thing I kept thinking about and that's a thing that I feel like When I work on Matt Chapman's plays that we do a lot is um, trying to figure out things that seem obvious and yet aren't. I guess I, I approached this play in a way more technically than I normally do just because it had this cohesive sense of style. There was always some sort of shadowy darkness that was hiding the next thing that you would see. And to me, that just meant that The scene that you were seeing had to be approached with a certain level of realism. So you would be shocked by the next thing. That if you get too expressionistic there, you know, you sort of take for granted that like, oh, this isn't real, but it is a real story. Or I'm just being tricked. Um, And you don't want people to think they're being tricked. They should feel like they know everything and yet are being tricked.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Uh, what's like an example of that? Like what's a scene re- that was firmly rooted in reality before the sort of switch got pulled?
1: There's one that's like a transition into a dentist's office that and it's super simple. like they're they're at a party and then this chair appears out of the stage and a light comes down. and in 20 seconds, they're in a dentist's office. And Evie Brooks did the costumes, and she was such a master at like quick changes that you couldn't even predict what one of the costumes would become. So everything would switch. The lighting would switch. The set would switch all in like a matter of five or 10 seconds. We had these books that came up out of the floor. And so it sort of looked like books were piling up as these set pieces sort of, you know, you thought that they were brick walls and then they revealed themselves to be bookshelves. And all of a sudden the world just felt like it was enveloping you. And you're like, wait a second. I thought I knew what these pieces were. I, how, did I, how did I miss this?
0: And we're going to leave it there for now with Elizabeth Harper. Join us next time for the second half of our discussion. We'll talk more about her career, her inspirations, and some of the shows she's done. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light, we tweet at Podcasting Light, and we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show.